0: Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Welcome with Dante, a podcast that has walked into the third canto of Purgatorio. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to be at lines 10 through 21. Moving on into canto 3 of Purgatorio, we have seen Virgil Ashamed full of self-loathing, perhaps even, as he is running away at Cato's reprimand. Dante has felt the need to assure us that Virgil is a pure conscience and a noble one, too. And now we're going to follow up with more about Virgil's drubbing and more about the pilgrim's reaction in lines 10 through 21 of Canto Three of Purgatorio. This is my English translation of the medieval Florentine, my admittedly non-poetic translation, an attempt to get them into English in a workaday fashion that leaves many of the problems in the lines without worrying at all sorry about the poetry. You can find this passage on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can print it off. You make notes on your print off. You can leave comments there if you'd like. All that can be done there on the website. Otherwise, we are going on to Purgatorio, Canto 3, lines 10 through 21. When Virgil's feet had left off of that frenzied pace that robs every action of its dignity, my mind, at first held in check, broadened its outlook. As if it were on a fervent search, I gave my full attention to the highest hill of all. It unlakes itself up to the heavens— Flaming its red rays behind me, the sunlight was cut up in front of me by my own figure in such a way that it was shaped by the rays resting on me. I whipped around in fear, thinking I'd been abandoned once I saw the ground before me darkened by me alone. This is a curious passage. Just fabulous. Virgil, oh oh man, we're going to talk about that. Poor Virgil, so undignified running, this old man running toward purgatory. I mean, come on, it's (laughs) it's a guy entering my dotage. I can say there is no dignity in my running anymore. Oh, when I was in my 30s and a runner all the time, (laughs) there was so much dignity in it. Now it's just a creaky... (laughs) Awkward gate. Well, I have pictured Virgil in the same way. Poor guy. And yet here, the pilgrim ends up at a place of fear. Remember, he had pulled up close to Virgil for reassurance. And yet here comes the ultimate fear, the I've been abandoned. We're back to Inferno Canto 1. We're back to right in front of the walls of Dis as well. That moment in which he thinks, oh, wait, you can't go ahead and talk to those demons up there and leave me standing back here all alone, kid. And you, what happens when Medusa comes out? That whole bit, we're back to that—that that feeling of being just left alone has in right before Garion arrives, and the pilgrim walks along the edge of the cliff to find the usurers. Let's look at this passage line by line. Let's start with poor Virgil, when his, that is Virgil's feet, had left off of that frenzied pace that robs every action of its dignity. Oh, let's just stop right there. Okay, the old man running. This is an interesting moment. Virgil, we've heard, is full of self-loathing. Virgil, we've heard, feels at fault, although the poet seems to forgive him, although doesn't totally let him off the hook since he says, oh, you know, it's a little fault. you You're not leading me to the mountain the way you're supposed to. But this moment, now that Virgil is running away and then slows down in this passage, is very much in contrast with other moments in Inferno. Let's talk through those moments for just a minute. This is in contrast to that moment in which they're standing in limbo, Virgil's home territory, remember, and they look around at the noble people on the Green Lawn, and they see their slow and grave eyes or the way the poets with Homer in their lead walk toward Virgil and Dante, there seems to be kind of a slow motion in Limbo as if dignity and speed are connected or dignity and the lack of speed are somehow connected. If you want to look at those passages, for example, the eyes bit is at Inferno, Canto 4, line 112. This seems in direct contrast to that, as opposed to that moment of steadiness amongst the poets or the dignified folk in limbo, Virgil seems here just in a frenzy. And that frenzy is important, that fretta. It's important to the passage itself because there's another time that that word is used. It's when the sodomites come up. To Dante and Virgil. Remember, they're running on the burning sands and they have to keep in motion. And when those three sodomites come up and make their circling motion down below the pilgrim on the sand, this word is used at Inferno 16, lines 17 through 18. Remember, Brunetto Latini, also an old man runs up now the word isn't exactly used there but still runs up toward Dante and Dante seems shocked to see Brunetto running and then at the end of that sequence even stranger Brunetto runs away but this time he seems like me at 30 running graceful (laughs) agile you know running nicely away this beautiful runner like someone running for a prize in a race All of that is sitting as echoes behind this moment of Virgil and his frenzied run away from Cato's rebuke. Let's jump to the end of the passage that we just read to just notice something, and then I'm going to come back to some harder things. I whipped around in fear, so the Virgil has slowed up a little bit. Dante is now staring up at this giant mountain that's rising up out of the water. The sun is hitting the back of him, the red rays. The sun's now fully up, having chased Capricorn (laughs) way up in the sky. The sun was cut up in front of me by my own figure. He's casting a shadow. And he whips around in fear, thinking I'd been abandoned once I saw the ground before me darkened by me alone. Dante has had no occasion to notice yet that Virgil doesn't cast a shadow. Hell is dim, There's not any light down there. I mean, there has to be some light, right? Otherwise, they couldn't walk down the path. It would just be cave dark. So it's not cave dark, but it's still so dim. You couldn't really tell if Virgil casts a shadow. And when Dante falls back down that mountain in Inferno 1, he seems to fall back down into the dark wood, and there Virgil appears. Well, that's a dim landscape, too. There has been no real moment up to this point in which Dante could say, hey, Virgil, you're not cast in a shadow. And apparently the sun wasn't far enough up yet amongst those souls that arrived in the angel's boat to see their shadows. Well, or else we were told that they went down to a spot where the dew was still there. Remember the dew hadn't evaporated off the rushes. So it was probably in shade where those souls listened to Caselo sing. This is the first moment in which it's bright sun and Dante has occasion to, to say, oh my gosh, I cast a shadow and Virgil doesn't. Oh, we have to talk through the implications of that. This passage turns on a very familiar emotional landscape. That is, discovery leads to fear. Right. Virgil's there. He's running along. Uh, He starts to slow up a little bit. Dante then discovers that he's casting a shadow against the rock wall of this giant mountain. He whips around in fear. Oh, there it is. Discovery to fear. Thinking I'd been abandoned once I saw the ground before me, darkened by me alone. Scared that he's been left alone. I suppose this answers the question from the previous episode of this podcast in which I said, what would happen if Virgil just turned around and said enough with you and walked back to limbo? What would happen? This would happen. The pilgrim would be in terror. The pilgrim wouldn't know what to do. The pilgrim is still relying on this classical Roman pagan damned poet. <laughs> I tried to make it as ironic as I could. This this poet to lead him across this most Christian landscape, purgatory, purgatory, But that bit of discovery leading to fear is what has to change over the course of Purgatorio. Discovery has to move to a place where it is no longer about fear, but instead it's about wonder. I'm thinking here of a poem by Emily Dickinson, Exaltation is the Going "...of an inland soul to see, past the houses, past the headlands, into deep eternity, bred as we among the mountains, can the sailor understand the divine intoxication of the first league out from land." that poem always strikes me because it's written by a poet who lived her life in the 19th century in a landlocked town in New England. Yes, she probably saw the ocean on various trips to Boston and maybe on her trip south to Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., when she was much younger. But Basically, she lived a landlocked life, and she lived in an age in which going out to sea is going in those creaky, stinking boats, those wooden sailing vessels, good grief. There's shipwrecks waiting to happen, is what they are. And yet, what she says is not fear is what happens when an inland soul goes to sea. It's exaltation. What if going out into the broad, deep brings about exaltation and, as she puts it, divine intoxication. That's what has to happen to the pilgrim to come back to comedy. The pilgrim has to move from a place in which discovery leads to fear to a place in which discovery leads to wonder. This move of discovery leads to fear has been the move through most of Inferno, and it's still in place here. Over the course of Purgatorio, it's going to start to change. By the time we reach the end of Purgatorio, we're going to find out that discovery can in fact invoke awe, or to use Emily Dickinson's words, exaltation. I want to point out something to you in the middle of this passage. I'm just going to start and read it from the top again. When his feet had left off that frenzied pace that robs every action of its dignity, my mind, at first held in check, broadened its outlook as if it were on a fervent search. I gave my full attention to the highest hill of all. It, here's the word, unlakes itself up to the heavens. I'm sure you heard it. As I read it, unlakes itself. Si dislaga. It literally comes up out of the lake, but it is, it unlakes, it's a reflexive verb, it unlakes itself. This is a Dante neologism, a new word. Dante has made up this gorgeous verb, si dislaga to explain how this mountain rises up out of the water. It unlakes itself. A neologism. This is something that we're going to have to talk more and more about. Over the course of comedy, as we approach Paradiso, Dante is going to start making up more and more words. This begins a huge huge strain of the comedy of creating words when language is not enough. When the vernacular, that vaunted vernacular that Dante loves so much, when the vernacular is not enough, you have to make it up. You have to create words. I, I do this all the time, right? You watch me do this in the podcast and I learn from Dante when I say the poem Architects itself. I I mean, I'm making up a word. There's no verb to architect in English. I'm creating words because I'm running out of the words to explain what I need. I want to tell you that I learned this trick from Dante. When you can't think of a word, take a noun and turn it into a verb and put an ending on it and put a prefix (laughs) on it. You'll get very close to the meaning of what you want to say. This is going to become an increasing thematic for us. And it's really important to see it here because it's so beautiful. A mountain that unlakes itself, that rises straight up out of the ocean. I put off talking about the consequences of this passage until the very end because it's a little bit difficult, but I want to raise it here. What happens in this passage is that Virgil's running. Dante is running with him. Dante at first can't concentrate because he's trying to keep up with Virgil. Dante kind of slows up and then starts to look at the mountain itself, how gigantic it is. Dante then sees his shadow and recognizes, and here's the crux, recognizes that he's still in his own body. He recognizes his corporeality. This is the beginning of a long tradition inside of comedy that the pilgrim is a kind of inverse incarnation. If Christ in Christian theology had to empty himself and move himself into human form in traditional christian theology then there is an incarnation in reverse that is happening to comedy and here's the emptying to use the fancy greek word the kenosis the emptying that jesus apparently does as a member of the godhead to enter human form emptying out some of those divine attributes here, the poet has to empty the poet out of the poet to become the pilgrim in the body that is walking across the known universe. He's also got to undergo a kenosis. He's got to take back all the things he's learned on this walk, void them out, and then restate them as the pilgrim walking in embodied in a place where no bodies should ever be no one should be in their body here and this recognition of his body is so crucial to what's going to happen in the next two cantos it is absolutely central corporeality is central to cantos three and four of Purgatorio. we've been dancing around the corporeality problem ever since inferno one Well, we're now hitting it hard, and this is what is so mind-boggling. When Dante realizes that he is in his body, that is the moment that he realizes he could have been abandoned. Just think about this a minute. There is a way that your body is actually a force in your isolation your alienation, your sense of being alone you're locked inside this thing, whether you believe there's a soul or not, okay, let's say there is a soul, then it's locked inside this corporeal form and it can't necessarily get out of it. Or let's say you have a more modern view and you think that you are a series of chemical and electrical impulses and chemical and electrical changes that create this consciousness that is inside of you that can think through its way and its own journey. Fair enough, but it does stop at the skin, right? It does stop (laughs) inside your corporeality and your corporeality may be the essence of your isolation. And this passage starts that thematic inside of Purgatorio. And it is such a human, such a human concern, such a human truth. No matter how much you love someone, no matter how intimate you are with someone, In the end, you're not really going to leave your body and enter theirs. Your bodies are going to be the space that continually divides you, even in sexual acts. Yes, of course, there may be a kind of insideness of a sexual act. I don't want to get crude, but you know what I mean. Of course, there may be this, but it's still your body inside another body. This theme that your body is what can lead to your isolation is going to become textured over the course of purgatorio with the notion that when you are disembodied when you're a soul you're actually yearning the whole time for your body we're going to find souls who yearn to have their bodies back who want them back so bad why Because the soul is lacking its container, its limits. We're back to that love moves the fence. Pastures need fences. If you're going to make a pasture for your livestock, you've got to fence it off. The problem is when you think your border is sacrosanct. That's where the problem is. But it still needs a border. And souls are going to need their bodies. And yet at the same time, bodies cause you to realize You're all alone. It is a fascinating intellectual conundrum that Dante is walking us slowly into. Let's read this whole opening of Cantatria of Purgatorio, starting back at line one and going all the way to the back of this passage at line 21. This way we can get the sweep. the passage itself despite the fact that that crowd's instantaneous flight had scattered them across the plain turning them toward the mountain where justice probes us, i by contrast pulled up close to my trusty companion how could i have run on without him who would have guided my way up the mountain he seemed as if he were torn up with self-loathing oh pure conscience and a noble one too how the sting of a little failure is so bitter to you When his feet had left off of that frenzied pace that robs every action of its dignity, my mind, at first held in check, broadened its outlook as if it were on a fervent search. I gave my full attention to the highest hill of them all. It unlakes itself up to the heavens. Flaming its red rays behind me, the sunlight was cut up in front of me by my own figure in such a way that it was shaped... By the rays resting on me, I whipped around in fear, thinking I'd been abandoned once I saw the ground before me darkened by me alone. You know this is going to require an answer out of Virgil. The problem is the answer he gives... (laughs) is an ongoing problem of the drubbing of Virgil in Purgatorio. Oh, man, poor Virgil. He's been so noble and such a great guide, but, man, he's coming in for some rough days ahead. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, do all those things you have to do. Come back cause listen, you got to catch up with Virgil because the depth of his character is now going to start to be revealed to us. And we're going to understand the texture, the unbelievably tapestry texture that is Virgil, perhaps the most complicated figure in comedy. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time.